So I, I apologize, Pastor Pat. I did tell you that I was going to do a burning ceremony of that jersey today, but um, I, I haven't been a Cowboys fan for many years. So as stated, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. And um, I was thinking about this passage this week, and one of the things I've realized that in life, particularly in adulthood, in life we are faced with so many decisions that we have to make, right? Out of high school, maybe you're trying to figure out where to go to college. Then you're going to kind of figure out what that career is going to be. In uh, family, you're trying to determine who you're going to marry, trying to figure out how your family dynamics going to look like, right? Um, and then, and then that, that moment comes of a real adulthood, and that's being a homeowner, right? So you, you, you make it, you become a homeowner, Right? And I can remember a few years back when Natalie and I started talking about ownership and what that was going to look like for us, we really had one specific thought in mind. We wanted a forever home. We didn't want to start up. We didn't want something that we can build into and then sell it and move. We just wanted something that would last us forever, partly because of our situation with Gabrielle. But we wanted something that was going to work now and that was also going to work for the future. So that's what we did. We looked and we had this one thought in mind. Now, there are many advantages, as you know, if you're a homeowner in this room, there's many, many advantages of being a homeowner, right? In some cases, it might just be, you know, just having the financial, the freedom of having your own home and doing what you need to do to, to it. You know, there's, of course, there's that HOA business that we don't want to talk about, right? That freedom that you have, you have, there's financial implications, right? Over time, you're spending less money, right? There's credit implications. It obviously helps your credit, there, there's an investment implications for many of us, right? So there's so many advantages to home ownership. I want you to think about this. What, imagine being in God's house. Imagine being in God's house where Jesus is the owner of that house. So that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look at those first six verses. Okay, we're going to be in those first six verses. So go ahead and find your way there if you hadn't had a bookmark since from last week. And we're going to see a couple of things here. As noted a moment ago with the kids, we're going to see not only that Jesus is greater than even Moses, but we're also going to see these benefits of living in God's house. Okay, so we're going to see those two things this morning. I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to pause there, and then we're going to get back into it in a few moments. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So again, I'm going to pause there because there's a lot packed in in this one single verse. So what I want to do is kind of break it down a little bit, and then we're going to get right back into the rest of it. Because what it's going to do is going to connect what we've seen so far and connect what we're going to read here in just a moment. So the first thing we see here, there's two phrases. There's holy brothers, and then there's heavenly calling. So I want to pause there and talk through that just for a moment. For the Christian, these are very critical words and terms, and phrases. Remember last week we learned that we've been made part of God's family, right? And, being, and, and by being united in the blood of Jesus, that's what unites us as a family. And it makes it possible for us to commune with God. And we also see here that we share a heavenly calling. And that's an interesting term that we probably don't use on a day-to-day basis. John Piper says this about this term. He says that heavenly calling relates to the two great needs 
that we have a word from God and a way to God. And it's this calling, and it's a calling which means that it's meant to show us the way home to God. So we've been called to him, right? And a Christian can only be called a holy brother, right, and share in this heavenly calling. So it's only a Christian that can be included in this group. So aside from being this amazing truth, we see there's, there's several terms and words that I want to kind of define too. And again, what I think this is going to do is better help us to understand the rest of this, uh, this passage. The first word, it, it's not a very strong word in the English language. And that's why I want to spend a moment or so with it. Um, and that word is this, it's consider. Right? Our, our sermon title today is Consider Jesus. Right? And if you just think about that on the surface, it doesn't really kind of completely help us to see what that means. And, and when you look at this word, it, it really means to put your whole mind to. It means to, to observe with careful attention. It's a very active and intense word. Okay? And it's, it's a call to an action from us there. And what, essentially what the writer is telling us that above all else, consider Jesus. Above all else, look to Jesus. That's what it's telling us here. Frankly, we all know this is a difficult task. It's a very difficult task, let alone for the Christian even today. So let's look at a couple of examples of what this might look like. So let's look at the example of media or our government today or even just in general the societal influences that we have in our, in our world today. A lot of these influences, so to speak, what they're trying to do is force you to believe something. They're trying to force you to do, live, and they're trying to force you to have this, this, this thought and this lifestyle. And in a sense, they're trying to tell us what's good and what's bad in many cases, right? So considering Jesus means that we hold to the truth of the word of God and that that is held in higher regard than anything else. That's the authority, okay? And it means that we, we're going to oftentimes be swimming against the, the flow of water, right? We're going to be swimming against the stream. We're going to be going against the grain, and it's not going to be an easy task for any of us. We're going to be going against what the culture believes us to be doing. And it is difficult, no doubt. But in the end, please remember this. The reward of doing that outweighs the immediate benefits of belonging to the world, and instead, we belong, and we know that we, we belong to the household of God. Several years ago, uh, a manager of mine, as we're sitting in a staff meeting, right, that, those two horrible, boring words, staff meeting, we're sitting in a staff meeting, we had an upcoming audit, he's like, Ryan is going to fix our compliance issue by, you know, tomorrow. And I look at him, I'm like, well, let me clarify that. I'm not going to fix the issue. I'm going to look at the issue. I'm going to audit the issue. I'm going to see where we are. I'm going to see where we can be by the time of the audit. In his head, I was going to fix the problem by fudging the numbers and fudging the compliance. That was not going to happen. So the next day, I pull him aside and say, hey, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. And at that point, frankly, I was ready. I had everything cleaned up out of my office. I had my passwords written out on a, on a sheet of paper. <laughs> I was ready to resign and leave 
because I was not going to be dishonest in my workplace. And that was a difficult thing. to. I had a lot of anxiety going into that, that, that next day. But I had to stand up for the truth. Even that, that meant not passing an audit or even possibly losing my job. So that's what it kind of means to consider, to consider all these things above anything else. The next word I want to look at is, is a unique designation to Jesus. The only time we'll see this designation, and that's the word apostle. This is the only time that Jesus is called an apostle in the scriptures. And it's a very unique and interesting term. Let me actually rephrase it. It's not a very unique term because it really only, it means serve. It's, it's, a, it's a designation for um, one who is sent by commission. It's a designation for those, one who is sent forth. So it's a very familiar word, especially since we've been in Hebrews for the past several weeks. And, and if we go back to verse, chapter 1, verse 14, it's actually used in reference to the angels who were sent. It's the same word that's used there. And in and, and, and that verse, it talks about the angels being sent out as ministering servants. And that's what that term, that sent out, is the same word that we see here. And we know that Jesus was sent by God because he says so in his heavenly prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 17, where he sent you, sent me into the world. And then he says, so I have sent them out into the world. And that's part of that heavenly calling that we just talked about. And then there's another, another term that's used here, and that's high priest. So Jesus here is identified as the high priest. And in verse 1, we see the word therefore. And I'm sure you've heard this a hundred times, if not more. But when there's a therefore, we've got to figure out why it's there. What is it there for? right? It, there means there's something that connects it. So at a very minimum, we can probably deduct that it, it ties it directly into what we saw last week, particularly probably looking at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. And let's go ahead and remind ourselves of what that says. Verse 17 of chapter 2 says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see that same word there, that same designation of high priest was there. So a high priest was one who represents one party to another. And the root word kind of paints this picture of a bridge. right? And Jesus is that bridge between sinful man and a holy God. Jesus is that bridge. He unifies the offices, so to speak, of apostle and priest. He unifies that, that body, and only Christ can really do that. He stands between man and God, and he, he, in, a, in a sense, he vouches for the Christian. That's kind of what that, that word propitiation kind of hints at. And then the next word is the word confession. Now, we've all heard this word, too, Right? We've all heard this word, um, and this is another action word. This is another word that requires an action from the Christian to his God. And the Greek word is only found, this specific word is only found six times in the entire New Testament. Three of those times is right here in the book of Hebrews. So it's very unique to this book. Each time it refers, and, and it's used, it refers to this confession of faith. Right, And you can also use it as a term that says it's a profession of faith. Right? It's professing the, the name of Jesus. There, think about this, this implication for this group of Christians who are receiving this letter. They were being persecuted for their beliefs. They were brand new Christians 
likely under Roman rule, and because of their suffering, they actually were con- contemplating going back to Judaism because they thought it was easier. So the implication of making a confession for Christ in that time was very difficult. And let's be real, it's also difficult for us today as well. In our culture, Christians are labeled, aren't we? We might be labeled as racist, bigots, homophobic, and so many other terms that are used against us because we speak and profess the name of Jesus. But I, I mean, obviously that's, that's minor in comparison to our brothers and sisters that are living abroad who are literally putting their lives on the line to profess Jesus as Christ. So I want to get back into the rest of the text. We'll, we'll, we'll bring verse 1, we'll carry it all the way through the section, and then we'll get into our main idea. Verse 1 says this again, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house, was as, as was a servant, to testify to the things that were spoken spoken later but christ is faithful over god's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope so again i want to remind us we're talking about two various things here in this section we're talking about the house of the lord and we're also talking about how jesus is greater than moses and then both of these truths are are not only important for us but most importantly to the audience he was written to at the time, which was that Hebrew church. So I want to do a little something different. Behind me, I'm going to put the entire text back up on the screen. It might be a little difficult for some of you to read, and I recognize that, but look at it in your Bibles or your, your tablets. What is the one word? You're going to help me fill in the blanks for the main idea. That's what's going to happen. What is the one word that you see that's used most often in this section? Okay, so I hear faith. What else do you see there? Jonathan. Apostles used in there at least once. Elizabeth. House. What do you guys think? Is house used often in this passage? Yeah, I would say so, right? Yeah, Jonathan. God. Always God, right? So, yeah, so house, right? It's used, I think, seven times in these six verses, right? So that's it, right? That's the, that's the fill in the blank this morning. You guys helped me do it. I appreciate it. The house of the Lord is greater than every other house. The house of the Lord is greater than every other house. So this chapter isn't all about Jesus being greater than Moses and comparing the two. It's really about the house of the Lord and how Jesus is that owner of the house. So we'll see that here. So the first thing I want to do is, as we look at this idea of the supremacy of the house of the Lord, I want to kind of present three arguments that the writer of Hebrews is actually helping us see here that defends this idea. So the first thing we see here is that the house belongs to the Lord. So that's his first argument about the supremacy of God's house is the house belongs to the Lord. And and let's let's look at a passage from 1 Peter that helps us see how this process is done. 
In verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, As you come to him, a living stone, so the him is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see that there? We're part of that house, and we saw that in verse 6. And that's really what's most promising about this entire section, is verse 6 that tells us that we are the house of the Lord. We, the church, Christians, professing Christians, are the house of the Lord. And you really can't help but wonder... It's very likely that this book was written before the destruction of the temple in in AD 70 because of the consistent references the writer uses. You can't help but wonder, at least I couldn't help but wonder, if this was some sort of foreshadowing and hint that the temple was going to be destroyed. The second thing we see here is that the Son, Jesus is the Son, so the house belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the son, so the house belongs to him. And we saw that here in this section. And I'm I'm not going to touch on that because it really goes hand in hand with the next one, which is this, that Moses was merely a servant in the house of God. Moses was a servant. So, and looking at some commentaries this week, one commentator I I, I came across, I forgot who it was when I wrote it. Um, He says this about the contrast of servants and sons and their roles during this time that this was written, servants have an obligation to faithfulness, but sons have a special vested interest in an authority over the house. So the son has a vested interest in and over, and has authority over the house. You see, Jewish believers at that time were still holding on to Moses. They were still holding on to the law. And, and what we see here and we learn is that the house of the Lord is greater than the house of Moses. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about this man Moses, as he's obviously a, a large part of this, of this section. You might be wondering, why Moses? Why were they mentioning Moses? Why is Moses so important and, 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 you know, and, and used here? So if you really think about the, the structure of our passages so far in the book so far to this point, author goes from comparing and saying that Jesus is superior to the angels, Jesus was deity, Jesus was God, Jesus was fully human, fully God. So he's going through these stages and then we fall here into Jesus is also greater than Moses. So the one thing I want to do is, is first of all, he's not saying that Moses is here. He's not tearing Moses down because we see here that he gives him a lot of credit, particularly if you look later in the book. We won't get there until probably next year in Hebrews 11, where Moses is part of what we call the faith chapter or the Hall of Heroes or however you want to call it. Charles Swindoll, I think, had a really good point here about why Moses is mentioned here. And he says these words. It's a rather long quote, so forgive me in advance. It says, In the minds of the Jewish readers a significant figure was still missing from the author's argument for the superiority of Christ's person and work, and that is Moses. He, too, was sent by God. He, too, stood between God and the nation as their mediator. And no other figure in the Old Testament would have been as highly esteemed by the Jewish people 
and Moses. Had the author of Hebrews been interested in flattering his readers, rather than exalting Christ, he would have avoided that, and he would have avoided uh, Moses altogether. And then instead, he pressed on to broach the delicate matter of the superior of Jesus, even to Moses. That was a controversial thing that the author did here. He said, guess what? Your Moses is even lower than Christ. And the Bible's clear on, on Moses' position. We read about him in, in Deuteronomy 34, you know, and, uh, that one of the final verses of that book says, There's not, has risen, not, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. Moses was held in high regard as he should have been. And he belongs in that Hebrews chapter 11 passage. But in no way does he, is he close in comparison to Jesus. And one of the key areas that really differentiated Moses and Jesus was the law and their relationship to the law. So Moses, for example, administered the law with the help of the angels we learned several weeks ago. And then Jesus actually fulfilled the law. Right? Galatians 3 helps us to see this very clearly. In, in uh, verses 24 to 26, Galatians 3 says this, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Right? That guardian word is a really interesting word. It means school teacher. You may have heard that before, but it was really made and, and it was designed. It says it was a, he was a guide. This, this school teacher was a guide until Christ came. And Christ is the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. Think about the relationship of a tenant and, the, and an owner, right? And the, the tenant is under the law of the owner. Right? And in God's house, not only are we part of the family of God, and then Jesus, who is the rightful owner of God, it changes that relationship drastically. So let's figure out why, now that we kind of see a little bit of this picture, why was Jesus greater than Moses? And we see it directly here from the text. It says, first thing we notice here is in verse 1, where he says, He is the apostle. Now, we looked at this word earlier, so we know exactly what it talks about here. And we know that Moses, when we look at that same exact you know, definition of the word apostle, he was also an apostle, apostle in that sense. But it's also important to note that, G, that Moses spoke about who? Moses spoke about Jesus. Moses spoke about Jesus, and we know that from John chapter 5. John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking with these religious leaders who are opposing him, and what he's doing is in that entire chapter, he's, he's emphasizing his deity, he's emphasizing his authority, and then later in the chapter, we come to these words starting at verse 50, 43. Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own names, you receive him. How can you believe when the, you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think, and I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So they set their hope on, on Moses. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus said, Moses wrote about me, people. What are you doing? 
You're holding your, your hat on, on this man Moses, but he wrote about me. So therefore, he is not a greater messenger than Christ. The second thing we see here of why Jesus is better and greater than Moses is because he is the high priest. Moses was not a priest. He played many, many roles. And actually, Psalm 99 does say he was a priest. But he says that Aaron was the high priest. His brother Aaron was the high priest. So Psalm 99 does affirm that, you know what, Moses was a priest, amongst many other things, but only Aaron at that time was considered the high priest. And then the Hebrews, this book of Hebrews argues that Jesus is the high priest, not a high, the high priest. So really there's no need for more. And that's what he talks about here. And then we see here too that Jesus is the fulfillment of, Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses' testimony. And we see that clearly here in verse 5. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 5 during the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he says, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's saying, I have come to ab- not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Those were Jesus' own words to the multitude. And Jesus did this by not only being a teacher, but also being a doer, as we see from his brother James in his book, right? Everything spoken by the law and the prophets was not only complete in his life, death, and resurrection, but more than that, it will be completed too when he, arrives, when he returns. And then finally we come to this. We, he is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. This is another affirmation of what we saw back in chapter 1, verse 3. The designation of Son of God really does mean that he is God. It really does point to that. It talks about his deity. It talks about his authority. It, it, it talks through his, him being equal to God. And, and we saw this earlier in the book, too, where he was the exact replica of God. In the sense of the word being used here, it, it speaks to the Messiah. It speaks to the Savior, the Deliverer, and again to that perfect replica of God. It affirms that only in Christ is salvation a possibility? Only in Christ is salvation possible. And again, because of that, we know that he is superior to Moses. And we see there as well that his house is superior to the house that Moses was merely a servant of. And then the next thing and final thing about this idea that, um, that Moses is, uh, is inferior to Jesus is that Jesus is the ruler he is the ruler of God's house. As son, in accordance to the, the, the culture of the time, as a son, he was the rightful heir. But he's also identified as the builder. Right? So as the builder, he naturally has dominion over his house. And again, what's really neat about that is we are his house. So what do we do with all this, this information? What do we do from here? What do we do now? First thing is simple. Consider Jesus. Now again, this isn't consider as if we're going to the closet and trying to, you're considering what to wear today. It's not that kind of, it's a deeper consideration. It's a, it's a contemplation, right? We're, we're really making a firm decision and it's a life-changing decision. Charles Swindoll, who I, I quoted from earlier, he also said this. He says, The superiority of Jesus will do us no good if we don't place him as superior in our lives. 
It'll do us no good if we don't make him superior in our lives. Simply put, that means he must be first. He must be first in our lives. Second thing we see here is that we need to consider being part of God's household. We need to consider being part of God's household. We've seen already that this household is reserved for those who persevere, right? That's found in verse 6 of this section. To those who are are holding fast to the faith. To those who hold Jesus and put Jesus above all else. And in his house, we're under his protection. Right? In his house, we're under his protection. We're under his guidance. We're under his love. We're under his grace. I ask you this. Why would you consider being anywhere else? And it really does bring us back to our main idea that the house of the Lord is greater than every other house. Every other house. I'm of the opinion that this section of this letter, it provides encouragement to those who are struggling to keep Jesus on top. It helps us to see that Jesus does need to be there because everything else pales in comparison. And we see we have to consider Jesus because we know now, hopefully more than any other time that we've seen already, just based on our last several sermons, that Jesus is greater, period. So this means, again, that we need to consider Jesus in all areas of our life. When the world around us is telling us to consider other things, we must stand strong and consider Jesus. Because Jesus, again, is greater. So we must consider Jesus in our marriage. We must consider Jesus in our families. We must consider Jesus in our decision-making. We must consider Jesus in our jobs, in our careers. We need to consider Jesus in our suffering. We need to consider Jesus in our pain. We need to consider Jesus when things are going really well. We need to consider Jesus in our difficulties. We need to consider Jesus in our doubts. We need to consider Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to consider you in all things. Help us to place you before everything. And I say this knowing how difficult it is. I say this understanding how everything around us tries to distract us from who you are and the work that you're doing in our lives. But Lord, we trust you. And we we. we understand God that you are in work and those who profess Jesus as Christ and for those who don't father I I pray God that you just speak to them now pray God that you help them understand that that there are so many other options available but there's only one right answer and that is Christ Jesus your son who you sent for our sins so help us God to to see you in all things help us God to focus on you in all things and help us to consider you above all else in Jesus name